0: Hi, I'm Chris Mirabella, and welcome to the Precious Stories podcast. In today's episode, I would like to share a conversation I recorded with Jerry Sexton back in 2017. Jerry had kindly accepted my invitation to share his experiences of being a Marcellin College parent during the formative days of the college. Well, what followed was an extraordinary personal story. I want to share it with you. Please enjoy. So Jerry Sexton, you would have quite a story to tell about Marsland because with six sons through the college, going from, ranging from 1957 through to 1976, you must have seen quite a lot in this school. Quite a lot of development, yeah. yeah.
1: I'm a Christie's boy. Right. And, uh, and all my brothers, we all went through the Christie's. One of them went into the order, actually. Uh, so when we came out here, we had two children when we came out here in 1949. We uh, naturally were looking, ultimately, to send the kids to a Christian Brothers College. But the only one, the nearest one, and the easiest one was Marcel, and then Canterbury Road, the Morris Brothers. So we took the decision to, to send them uh, to send the boys there. But and that we, started
0: it. Yeah, great. And, and where did, when you say you came from, where were you coming from?
1: We came, I came from Kensington. I was born at Kensington, grew up there, went into the army from there, and uh, I met a girl from West Melbourne, from St Mary's Parish there, and uh, we married in 1944. Were you still in the army? I was still in the army. I had been away four years. I didn't go overseas. I went up. They sent me up to Darwin in the early part of 1940, and that's where I... And that and the surrounding area was my area of
0: operation for, uh, for over four years. So were you in Darwin when I got bombed? Yes. yes. Well, this is a whole different story, but let's tell, tell me about it. What's your memory of that? I left St Kevins at the end of 1938.
1: Family finance wouldn't have allowed me to go any much further, so I got myself a job at the Herald office in Flinders Street. And then I was there twelve months, and I joined the army in March nineteen forty. How old were you? Eighteen. I was eight. I'd been. I'd gone eighteen in the November of thirty nine. So I joined the army, and it's two months later, I was uh, I was in Darwin, and attached to a permanent army mobile force up there as an artilleryman, as a gunner, and uh, we. We were on the outskirts of Darwin at a, uh, and our barracks was really a converted meat abattoirs establishment owned by, or it used to be owned by one Lord Vesty, which I don't know whether that name rings a bell, but vestis were an old English uh, peerage family that owned a lot of properties up in, or leased a lot of properties up in the Territory. Ultimately, they pulled out, and uh, by the time I got up there in April 1940, the army had taken it over, and it, they were building a permanent barracks closer into Darwin. But in the meantime, we 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 propped out at uh, out at vestis So as an 18-year-old,
0: a raw gunner, <laughs> uh, was uh, quite a quite a change. I know you said you didn't go overseas, but you're in the thick of World War War in Darwin because we, as history tells us. We- another yeah. the Japanese bombed down. Yeah, we, were, we were we went
1: up there with the expectation. Well, we were sent up there. We didn't know what, what was going on. And as I say, 18-year-old, just a raw recruit, more or less. You uh, you do as you're told, go where you're told. It, ultimately, it started to dawn on even we lower-rank fellows that something might happen. And uh, they built up the, the the Army and the services' strength up there. And then... Uh, Pearl Harbor occurred and uh, round about that time we moved out of uh, out of the old Vestis barracks and into the newly completed permanent army barracks in Larakea, just uh, close into on the edge of Darwin itself and uh, we were there actually when the bombing the first bombing took place on February 19 1942 It was a bit of a shock, it was no surprise really because we'd more or less been anticipating that something was going to happen, but when it did happen it was a shock and then of course it continued on and off over months. Spasmodic, no real pattern to it at all. The first day and the follow-up days were a bit rough. My main recollection of the actual day was uh, we were organised into body recovery workforce, for want of a better word, down round the the Darwin Harbour. We'd had a lot of boats in there. There was a lot of American uh, fleet boats there and uh, quite a few coastal trading boats. And uh, they all got blown up or else burnt. They blew, the Japanese blew the oil tanks and that and float out onto the harbour and uh, boats that didn't blow up from the actual bombs blew up when the, when the fire got to them and uh, you know detonated the ammunitions on the boats. And then a lot of the fellas were trying to jump off the boats to swim to shore. Well, of course, they got burnt. And so uh, we had a big recovery job there to do for a day or two. Getting uh, pulling bodies off the water and up off the beach. Now that's the main uh, part of it that sticks with me more more than that. After a little while, things kind of settled down and got things got back to normal, actually. But by that time, I'd been transferred out of the artillery unit. I can't quite recall when that was, but I think it was... The latter part of 1941, a few of us called out on parade one day... And, uh, we were asked to confirm our level of education and uh, I had to admit to the fact that I'd done my like my trick uh, and uh, the next thing I know a couple of us are seconded away from the artillery unit and where I find ourselves over in headquarters. We start to push pens and do all sorts of other things for a while and so the rest of my army service I spent in uh, Army headquarters, In Darwin, Catherine, Alice Springs, Adelaide River, which is about a hundred well, about 150 kilometres south of Darwin. And that's where the headquarters was ultimately. So, well, that's that's where it finished up. And then uh, just before I went away, I, I was invited to a birthday party of, uh, of a family down the street from the church at, at Kensington and uh, one of the girls of the family had invited a friend of her an old school friend of hers from west melbourne now i met this lass and uh, uh, met her a couple of times before i went away but then whilst i was away uh, we started corresponding i suppose we started corresponding late in 1940 and that ultimately led to us getting married in august 44
0: you kill, you kill him in suspense. What's, your, what's her name? Betty. Betty McNeil. She, she was right. known as Betty or Elizabeth? Betty. Beckley. Betty, yeah. She was Betty then? She was Betty, yeah. So it was love at first sight, is that what we're saying, Jerry?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, well, there was a first sight aspect to it and then the uh, courtship by correspondence.
0: Wow.
1: Early part of we I felt that I was going to be able to get some leave and come down and so we decided to get married and... Uh, I came down and we got married in uh, August '44, and my understanding was that I was going back up to Darwin but I was only, we were only married a week and I got an army telegram to say that uh, instead of going back up there I had to report to headquarters in Melbourne which I did and they said that uh, they were reposting me and they reposted me to a job in Melbourne. Do you think they were looking after you or it was just pure bureaucracy that happened? I think it was bureaucracy the way it worked out, but the things fell in. I was very, I've been very fortunate in, 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 in all in a lot of things both in the army and within the bank, that the fact that I didn't get shifted around too much.
0: Yeah, well both occupations are very w- yeah. well known for the, well, that's right.
1: for the moving, yeah. moving around. I got a job in, I was, got a posting with the army in Melbourne and uh, actually it was at Royal Park at the time, they were just getting getting rid of the Americans out of uh, out of Camp Pell there in the bottom part of Royal Park. And they brought the, uh, the our own army recruit and discharge depots in from Watsonia. So I was put on the staff there and uh, I stayed there until 1946. 1946 I met a cousin of mine one day, I was still in the army, I met a cousin in the bank, Commonwealth Bank, and he said to me the bank was taking on some ex-servicemen, would I feel like putting in for it. So I did, went and sat for an exam, passed it, and a month later I was out of the army and working for the Commonwealth Bank. That was September 1946. You're still a young man, you're still in your early, mid well, I, I had at that stage I was only 24, and that one child, uh, I had three options. I could have stayed in the Army, I could have taken a discharge and gone into the Defence Department, Public Service, or get right out and, and do something different. So I got right out and did something different. I went into the Commonwealth Bank in 1946 and I retired from there in 1982.
0: extraordinary and your first place in Commonwealth Bank was, you might have said this I apologise if you did, was it in town or were you in a branch? No I did did 12 months because of my age, Uh, by that time
1: I was coming up 25 and they decided to give me a 12 months more or less uh, cadetship uh, which I did in Collins Street State Office. I went through virtually every department in the place And then they sent me out to Footscray to a branch. So really all my working life, or most of my working life was in branches. I was in branches from 1947 until 1971. That went up, gradually went up to finally got my first manager's job at Escort Vale and then Ivanhoe. And then I was made a a branch inspector Working through Victoria and Tasmania. And in 1975, I was appointed as a regional manager covering uh, the state, say between Melbourne Achuca and Melbourne Mildura. That was all my area. Uh, And I did that until 1970, for two years, in 1977, when I was called back into Chief State Office. And I stayed there for, uh, uh, for the next five years. And I, when I left, I was running the what they call the General Administration Department in State Office. It's a dog's body department, for want of a better description. Anything that nobody else wanted to touch,
0: finished with us. <laughs> well, you had the right, I mean, as an army man and all the <laughs> jobs had to be done and yeah, done, yeah. and you were so, probably well, the right you, you roll up your sleeves and get into <laughs> it, yeah. So
1: that's where I was when I retired. I took early retirement because uh, Betty's mother, her father died when uh, from First World War trench gas when she was six, 16 and when her mother got aged, she was living in West Melbourne, uh, we brought her out to live with us. She was living with us for about, oh, when she was about 85 she came to us and she lived with us for 12 years. She died at the age of 97. And I put in my retirement notice to the bank with the idea of helping Bet look after her at home. Three weeks before I ac- officially retired, she decided she'd had enough, and she died in the bed at home. <laughs> yeah. So then it was, do I do I stick to my uh, decision to retire? And uh, I was asked by the bank, would I like to stay on? And I said, no, thanks. Everything's arranged. Blah blah. So we got out. So there we are. Yeah. So that's, that's the personal side
0: of it. That's all right. That's good. It's in, very interesting. And I'd love to ask you a 100 more questions about that period around yeah. the war. But we're here to talk about Marcelin. And, and that's right. So yeah. when when did you and Betty come to North Baldwin? Well, it we
1: came there. to North when We we became engaged in 1942 and we bought a block of land out here in North Baldwin. Right. It was bush, more or less. And... We were pointed out here by a, a girl called Josie McGrath, who actually who had been born Josie Santa Maria, the only sister of Bob, of the, the Bob Santa Maria. I was going to ask her the name yeah. of Santa Maria. There's a good chance. And, yeah. and she was a great mate of Betty's. She's a little bit older, but they'd been through St Aloysius in North Melbourne together. And when Josie heard that we were engaged, she talked Betty into lots of things and one of them was we finished up buying a block of land where as I say we weren't even married but we bought this block of land and it was she uh, pointed us out this way So we we got we got that block of land where we
0: subsequently
1: built a house well we're
0: talking so we're, about that block of land and bush and for people who are listening to this we're talking about virtually the corner of Doncaster Road and Boleen Road where they pretty much meet yeah. right behind the village there there's yeah. the cafe just, and
1: just, just 300 yards up the road yeah,
0: and what was the land being used for then? Was it orchards or? Uh,
1: it had been predominantly orchard, nursery, Great Rose area. But that was more, say, beyond Balwyn Road. And the further, further away you got, uh, the more rural it became. The area, say, from Burke Road up to Balwyn Road was reasonably established with pre war buildings, a lot of old weatherboards and occasional brick ones. We bought the land in 42. The, the streets on the southern side of Doncaster Road as far as Maud Street were made. Beyond that it was paddock. On the northern side of Doncaster Road, there were a few buildings and shops along Doncaster Road. Behind them, coming this way,
0: were paddocks. Did the tram go through then?
1: The tram, when we bought the land in forty two, the tram stopped at the Harp of Erin in East Kew. That was the terminus. By the time we started building in nineteen forty seven, uh, the double line had come down to Burke Road and there was a single line up to Walwyn Road. By the time we moved in in March forty nine, the double line was through to Walwyn
0: Road. Where it's stayed ever since. Yeah. can I ask what what was Betty doing when you met her oh, when she was she was working she was working with the public the state public service she was with the
1: apprenticeship commission she uh, she'd left school and done it at the age of about 15 and, and done a secretarial course she was working with an insurance company I think initially and then she got a job into the state public service with the apprenticeship commission. So she was a stenographer. <laughs> a stenographer, that's an occupation. Well, actually, is there such yeah. thing
0: as a stenographer now in Parliament? Do I, don't, I...
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know. Hansard. Uh, oh, I don't know. Well, I think the Hansard has done all the way we're doing this now, isn't it? Everything's picked up on the
0: microphone and, and, and recorded then. I don't think they have to do the shorthand. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jerry, so uh, you've established the home, you've built a home. It took
1: us a year and 10 months to build a home. Materials were rationed and everything you wanted to buy to, to help build a house you had to have a permit and the only way you could get a permit was through the council building inspector and the building inspector did pretty thorough jobs in those days. You couldn't order ahead. head, you had to, for instance, if you wanted to order the frame, timber frame for a house, you had to get the building inspector to come along and confirm Uh, that you had your footings in place and that you had your brickwork up to plate level and that you were now ready to put the frame up. And then he would give you a permit to to go and get the timber. Well, then, of course, you had to wait for the timber to come. So it's not as though you had everything following along, you know, in sequence so that when you finished that job, you could immediately start on the next one. You had to... There was always this waiting time in between. So a year and ten months it took us. We came out here in March '49. It wasn't a parish of its own, it was, as far as the church was concerned, there was a little school hall uh, down in Severn St. Street, but we were part of St Anne's parish at East Kew. We had two sons when we came out, Rod and Paul. Gerard was born in January 1950 and we had to take him up to St Anne's to be christened. And a month later, it was announced that St Beed's was going to be made a parish. Just around the corner. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, that's when the parish started in February 1950. All the children went to school at St beads And the boys ultimately then, because St. Marsland was the closest, they, uh, I had to change allegiance and... Uh, from the Christies, and uh, which I've never regretted that. So the boys went to Maris
0: Brothers, and uh, Mary went to Genetano. So Kempwell, we know, was opened in 1950. So we're 1950. not talking that long after before Rod was enrolled. In so did well. Rod- he was
1: there. He went there in '57. Brother Ludovic was still was the principal then. He'd taken over from uh, Nihilus Kenny, I think it was.
0: That sounds about right. Yeah. Yes,
1: and uh, Ludovic was there. In the meantime, of course, they had. Purchased the land, I think, down here. Pauline, it was, yeah, they got it. it well, I think it was purchased, it was a joint kind of an effort. Brother Sylvester, who was the first principal here, he and Brother Donald, who was the Marist provincial at the time, uh, I think they were the ones that more or less, I don't know who actually did the final decision on, on buying it all, but they were the ones who more or less were in charge when the
0: thing got underway. Where you're living is you wouldn't say exactly in the middle of the two campuses, but close enough. How did Rod and the siblings end up going to? How did they get to Camberley? They they biked. Oh, they biked. I didn't have a car. Right. Did we, you have a license? I didn't have a license. Wow.
1: When I first came out here, we had seven children. We had the seven children before I got a car. <laughs> <Are> you
0: kidding. <laughs> how do you have seven? Children? <laughs> I couldn't so, afford one. <coughs> well, I suppose. So the boys, schools weren't far away, and the boys the, the boys went on bikes. And, and but the shops at Northbourne was sufficient. For there was a f- there
1: was enough there, and, and Betty could go down. There was a Moran and Cato uh, grocery store down there, and there was chemist shops and all and all the all the essentials and a couple of banks. Things have changed a little bit. Well, they but have changed a little everything bit. Everything was there that you needed. And tram into the city. And the tram, by this stage, the tram was running up and down to, to uh, Baldwin Road and tram stop at the corner. We didn't realise that when we bought the block, but that's where it finished up, So, uh, which was a, a, a quite a godsend to me, really, when I finished up working in the city. Uh, no transport problems there.
0: So the boys rode their bikes to Campwell Did they go through the back streets or did they just head up Burke Road? No, they went through the cut through the back streets. Yeah. Yeah. They'd, they'd cut down to Burn Street up
1: into Belmore Road and work their way down there finish up round into, uh, into Mont Elbert Road and then cut down into Canterbury Road. Of course, to the Ridgeway. Yeah, they, they worked out the shortcuts. <laughs> you do pretty quickly.
0: <laughs> well, that, well, the bikes, did they all have gears on their bikes at that stage? No, 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 no.
1: Gears came in later on. I think by the time Leo was going there, there might have been a gear on the bike, but in the early days, no, they, they were either free, what they call free-wheeled or fixed wheel. I think they were freewheels, so you you could if you're going downhill, you could back off you know and just stop pedaling then pick it up again when you hit the flat for myself, getting to and from functions at uh, Canterbury Road, I had some good mates, the families in the parish all kind of worked together, and you know the Gartner family, not the Gartner. yeah well, old Bill Gartner was and he and his wife Nell were very conscious of the fact that Betty and Jerry Sexton didn't have a car and so. Anything that was up for, or that wanted transport, I'd get a call. <laughs> yeah, we'll pick you up. Do you want to go? We'll pick you up. And in those days, we used to have parents' nights, uh, fathers' nights over at Canterbury. I, I can't remember the frequency, but uh, they used to be kind of get-togethers. And, you know, we'd have a, a sausage and a sandwich and a glass of beer or something. <laughs> the brothers would let their hair down a bit. and. But uh, Bill Gartner, or one of the boys, would always pick me up and take me over and make sure I
0: got home. And, uh, and who were some of the other families and personalities that you were friends with? Uh, they were the Johnsons, the Karukans, the uh, O'Toole's.
1: The O'Toole family, the father was Terry O'Toole. He had the, uh, the Toyota uh, franchise out at Nutterwadding. And, uh, and the Crappers, the Crapper Boys. Uh, Tony you'd know from his footballing days. Tony and Peter and, uh, and the other one was Richard. Fred Crapper, the father, he, he had a car, and and uh, Bill Bill Gartner. They were the main ones that kind of looked us, looked after us, and uh, and parish picnic days and things like that. Uh, even old Father Broderick, would, you know, if we were wanting short of a lift and they had some room, he'd pick some of us up and
0: take us. It. it was it was the way then we yeah, were
1: pitched in. We there was always a way of getting somewhere.
0: Yeah. So in terms of your, like in between those formal nights where you might have had a parent night, Mm. your connection with the school in between times, wasn't it? Like today kids get dropped off and picked up all the time, they've got music lessons, they've got footy training and parents are coming and going. Because out here at Bulleen there isn't the public transport that that we had at Camberwell. So did you have a very close connection with the school in those early days? Not an
1: ongoing one. We only had the periodic get-togethers. It wasn't until they established here that uh, that Betty and I both became very much involved here then and she got into the canteen and the, with uh, Nell Gartner and uh, what's her name, uh, Linda Donovan, the old group and uh, Dolores Mann, Bernadette O'Toole. They, they worked well together. I had an infrequent association with the brothers when they were at Canterbury Road just be- because of the fact I had... But you no know, way of getting there really, until once I got the car, then I it was I was the chauffeur, and on my way to at that stage. And when I got the car, I think I was still working at uh, I was still working at Ascot Vale, and uh, so I used to deliver kids to Marcel and and my daughter to Janet Zano, and then continue on to go to work. It was much easier when I, find when I 1966, when I got appointed to manager at Ivanhoe, of course it was much closer
0: and I had a bit more time to, to spare with delivering kids around the place. Yeah. <laughs> what did the sort of stuff came home from the kids? What did they talk about their school days when they came? home? Did they have good experiences? Do you they think? did. They've stuck with a lot of their mates. Uh,
1: they've all become, over the years, and even the ones that got into trouble, the others seem to all get together and, uh, all out, <laughs> carry them along for a while until they got, you know, got going again. Uh, that's the, that was the attitude. Uh, Rod, uh, Billy Gartner, uh, Brian. Brian was a little bit older. John McMahon, Peter Wilson, Crapper. Peter Crapper. They've stayed more or less in close contact for years. Well, that's that's never changed. Mars and the kids. Yeah, yeah, Mars and the kids about, stick yeah. together. I think. I realised that when I, when uh, John Walsh kind of got my badgered me and got me down to that gathering here That's at right. Canterbury Road earlier this year. Yeah. I realised then how much it had kind of continued on and I met a lot of chaps that day whose names I knew but I didn't know the faces, but I knew them through my own boys because they always used to talk and mix and
0: somewhere or other run into each other. As a parent, I mean, back in those Camberwell days, it was pretty rigid the way education was conducted. And we all know that those of us who went to Camberwell, you know, if you look sideways and that, you might get a rap with the cuts and things like that. Mm -hmm. As a parent, what was your position on that sort of stuff on the corporal punishment? Well, I, I didn't mind. I grew up with corporal punishment. I had a good upbringing,
1: but as a kid, if I stepped out of line, my old man soon heard about it, and I got the razor's drop from behind the bathroom door. <laughs> when I went to, through the Christian Brothers, and they were no namby pambys, the teachers there. They, you know, if, they, if you wanted a cuff over the ear, you got it. But I never ever rebelled against it because I accepted the fact that I probably got what I was deserving. And if I'd have started to think otherwise, I'd have been rudely awakened by my mother and father who, who would have told me otherwise. But there was not that much of it. Once, I think one of the one of the brothers at St Kevin's uh, in my last year there might have stepped over the mark, but that was the only c- occasion that I really might have complained to somebody about it. And all I did was tell my mother. <laughs>
0: Who were the personalities at Campbell, teachers-wise, staff-wise, brothers or non-brothers, that you can recall that really stood out for your kids? There
1: was Marie Ryan. Who we've just lost. Uh, who we've just lost. Uh, Margaret Dwyer, but there was, but she was in the office. Yes. Uh, she she was behind the scenes. She and Marie Ryan became good mates over the years. The brothers were, well, Ludovic and uh, Evaristus. Uh, he left the brothers, actually, Evaristus. But... Uh, They were all very capable people, but I didn't didn't have a lot to do with them outside of the occasional, you know, get-togethers. And Betty was a full-time mum? And she was a full-time mum. She worked at home. She ran the local kindergarten. Did she? Unofficial. Oh, okay. Yeah. All the kids in the street and the kids from roundabout, and even from school, the mothers at the school, Betty McNeil, or Betty Sexton's place, was always the drop-in spot. So that's that's what a mother of seven <laughs> needs when all <laughs> well, the kids are at school, aren't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah. <laughs> so right from her very early days, she was a she, she became a kindergarten mistress. Wow. And uh, where we were, we, we only had three streets before we got to school, the kids. And they didn't have to cross a main road. And more often than not, the others would know that Betty would be taking one or two of ours down. They'd bring theirs and drop them with her and then instead of dropping off, you, you, you go on a walking trail or know Yeah, <laughs> that's probably you know, they, uh, Oh no, she, she
0: was quite happy with it, she enjoyed it. So the eastern suburbs is swelling, it's all coming this way. The Morris brothers have made a clever decision in to buy this property here in Bulleen, where we're sitting. And that's a game changer, because by the time the boys are now at the sort of senior half of their secondary education, they're over here at Bulleen. So how do they get to Bulleen? Do they walk or ride a bike again? They ride. Rode a bike straight down Bullen Road. Straight down Bullen Road. Turn right at uh, Thompsons Road. Turn right at Thompsons Road. No freeway, of course, uh, at that stage. They didn't have anything down there.
1: I can remember Michael. Uh, he he was coming down Bullen Road one morning on his way to school, and there was a bread truck came down Hill Road. You know where the lights are there? Yes. And and uh, that came through and knocked him off his bike, ran over his foot. I was at work at Ascot Vale at the time, and, uh, and I got a ring on the phone from Betty to say she was at the Austin Hospital. <laughs> <I> was, what? <laughs> so she explained about she was there with Michael. He had trouble with his toe ever since. Oh, I'm not surprised but, uh, getting hit and run over by a truck. Now they rode their bikes. Yeah, but it was much easier for me by the time they established down here. I had my car, so I was able to get up and down myself. The boys rode their bikes. Peter started here in 1964. Now, he came straight from some beads in Year 6 to here
0: in Year 7. So they were teaching Year 7 here, even though they were teaching Year 7... Yes, they
1: kept the double stream going because they... To look after the boys coming down on the train from the Eastern Hills.
0: Yeah, because there's some famous stories of guys coming down from Lilydale and Alinda. Right. I think we had. Uh... Well, they kept that going. Yes. And Peter, I think
1: 1964. Whether he was the first, he was the first of mine to do that, and I'm pretty sure they started year seven here that year or thereabouts.
0: Well, it's funny, you know. It's, it's interesting because we talk about. 1950 is the first year that Year Seven, uh, the kids come into the school, and we know that Brian McCrone was the first boy to the school because dad dropped him off early and things yeah. like that. But we don't think of bullying as the first day, is at all? Do no. we, in sixty. No. Back, well, it's opened in sixty. Uh, yeah. Sixty-three, I bigger part. Well, it would have only. Yeah. Wouldn't have been sixty. No. Yeah, no, I, I think they had yeah. the land by 1960. Oh, yeah. So look, why don't we run down the names because. People listening to this, and my experience with the school is that I've known sextons, and I've always tried to join the dots. Yeah. So for the people who are into this sort of thing, let's go through the boys' names. There's Rod, who was number one. Yeah, he was here fifty. I'm looking at your cheat sheet here too. way. Yes, right? yep. fifty-seven to sixty-three. Yes. Mm. Paul fifty-nine to sixty-six. Jared nineteen sixty to sixty-three. Yeah, Peter sixty-four to seventy. Yes. Michael sixty-nine to seventy-four. Yeah. And Leo seventy one to seventy six, so that's an extraordinary part of Martin history. Fifty seven to seventy six. Well, there's nineteen years there. Yeah. Six boys to school, and your daughter um, and Mary, Mary. Yeah. who went to Jen. Yeah. So where does Mary come in the? Uh, she comes in after Peter, between Peter and Michael. She was born. Uh, she was born
1: nineteen fifty four. So yeah, so she's what uh, she's coming up sixty two this year.
0: And and you lost Paul.
1: And we lost Paul. Yes, we lost Paul in. Uh, May 92. Well, it was a little bit awkward. I, I It was a hard time for Beth and myself, but more so because we'd only just three months before said goodbye to Michael. Michael left school here in, at the end of 74 and went into the Morris brothers. He did his postulancy at Yarra Street with uh, a brother Leonard. And then the next year, he was at Macedon, And then he did his scholasticate out at Clayton and did his degree course at Monash. But fast forward to beginning of 92, they'd uh, asked him to go to India, to the formation group over there with the Indian brothers or Indian applicants. So he went over in uh, January or February 92, and uh, I... And then three months later I had to ring him and tell him. Now that was a hard time for us but at 63 Gerard went to Wangaratta in 70, 64 to do his junior training with the idea of going into the brothers but then of course at the time he came back out of there in 60, 67 he pulled out at the age of 17 and uh, we got him we got him a job in the in the State Public Service. Peter stuck through, yeah. But then Michael and Leo, they both started over at the two youngest ones both started over
0: at Canterbury Road. So who started here in year seven? That was uh Paul. Peter. Peter did. Yeah. So he started year seven in Bullying, but Michael and Leo started year seven at camberwell Yeah. Right. How do you plan that as a parent? <laughs> <laughs> well it got a bit awkward. <laughs> But by that time, I had a car and, you know, we were. <laughs> it's part of history that most people don't. I mean, I'm, this is the first I've heard of that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you literally got a foot in both camps. And, they, you know, talking to people, old boys from that time, and I, I did both campuses, they were quite two distinctly different schools. Well, they were, in a way, yeah. I can
1: remember the opening. I was here at the opening. Were the you? official opening of the, uh, the buildings here. There's those uh, fo- we've got those photos of that opening. Yeah, today. brother... Brother Hilary was the uh, Australian brother, but he was the Deputy Superior General in Rome. And he came out for the, for the opening. Uh, Sylvester was the principal at that stage. Uh, he'd taken over from, uh, from Ludovic. And uh, Brother Donald was the provincial. They had separated, at that stage they'd separated the province, or they'd broken up the province, and you had the north and Sydney, uh, Sydney Melbourne and Melbourne. Yes. So, brother Donald was the was the Melbourne man. So I can still remember them. And you've got a uh, down on the main on the regional building there. You've got the you've got the uh, statuette kind of into the wall there. The big dais was in front of that. And the rest of us were all kind of, there was no seating or anything. We were all kind of standing around. I think there might have been some seats up the front for some of the old and infirm. But the rest of us, I can remember, we were
0: all kind of standing around, listening to all the speechifying. Well, the landscape was different, a lot different too, wasn't it? There was a quarry and a... a Up on the hill, there was a quarry. where where golden way. You know, golden Golden way, all in
1: there. That was was a big quarry, a big clay quarry.
0: And across the road, what we now call Bullen Park was a series of billabongs, and there was a. I know Frank B- Vanderboom's family had were adjusting cattle. I think across there as yeah, well. Yeah, there was
1: there was a lot of lot of uh, lot of adjustment work going on over that way with cattle.
0: And every seven or eight years, when we got one of those huge rain events, Bullion Road would go underwater. Underwater. And, and Marston would go underwater That's right. too. Yeah. The grounds down there, things changed
1: down there. John Bray. John was an agricultural engineer of some some dis- I forget what the actual discipline was, but he was very much in tune with the agricultural requirements, and he was responsible more or less for the overall design of the landscaping and the drainage. Was and he there? Yeah. Okay. I can remember working with the, with the fathers on the the planting of all those trees around the, the loop there. Yeah talk about chain gangs. Brother <laughs> Prosper was the was the man who, who more or less controlled. He did all that part of you know, we we were organized into groups and one group went along and dug the holes and another lot came along and put the fertilizer in and then someone else came along and put the stake in. And something there was another lot coming along with the trees and small trees and putting them in tying them to the stake and then someone else with the water cart, and we went over a period of i don't know how many weekends we we got all those trees planted around the, around the loop there and there that was the kind of thing that we all enjoyed we became good mates all
0: of us well when you look back at that and you think now that parents you know, everyone's busy running off doing things and working bees are really a thing of the past now right. yeah. um do you feel that we miss something now that we don't because we don't do that? It is. We, you do. I
1: gave a, um, was put on the grill over at St Bede's there earlier or earlier in this year about my recollections of uh, this area before St Bede's was a parish. But when we we came out here and there weren't many of us, but we all kind of and even we had all different kind of status in life. Outside of that, once we got together. You know, we were all mates. We had chemists and doctors, and we had one bloke in charge of the from, uh, from big noise. He was—he finished up as uh, national, international president of the Meteorological Society. He didn't have children here, but he was part of our working group down there.
0: Well, I, I think you, yeah. for that work you did because in the summertime, when yeah. I come down here and watch my boys playing with the old yeah. boys, yeah. there's plenty of shade, beautiful, yeah. Sh- yeah. beautiful yeah. trees. Yeah. It's yeah. so like a little oasis. And I think we lose sight of that fact that yeah. a lot of the work done around... And in the 70s, Steve was big on using the labourers That's in the right. school yeah. and they built a lot of, yeah. you know, yeah. la- literally laid bricks and... As parent, I did, and yeah, I, did. I
1: didn't become involved in that side of it. Uh, I, I stuck to the garden end of it. <laughs>
0: Well, Jerry, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, and I'm mindful of the time I've taken up so much of your time, and and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I should actually let's keep. I just want to finish this. We, we yeah. you lost Betty a few years ago, is that right? Uh First of all, she looked after her mother at home for twelve years, and the
1: last four years, uh, the mother was uh, virtual in senile dementia. But she died. She lived. She lived until she was ninety-seven, and. That was the reason I re- was retired ultimately, to help Betty look after her. As it was, she beat us to the gun and got out. But I spent my first 12 months of retirement in 82 to 83, more or less nursing my wife, because she'd been living on her nerves for, for so long. And gradually we came to enjoy retirement, and we used to head up to Queensland every year, in the winter time. We started going up for three weeks. Gradually and every now and again we'd extended a week until the last trip we did was in 2004 and I think we were away about nine weeks <laughs> but it was beautiful. But we were all due, all set to go up in, the, in May 19, uh, May 2005 and one Saturday morning Betty walked up to the corner of our street to catch a tram to go into the city she never got there. Tram stopped to pick her up and she walked out to get onto the tram and the car came through and hit her. So that was two, May 2005. Uh, she died seven years later, but 12 months after that operation we noticed that she was just starting to slip. And whatever whether there was something there that was triggered we don't know, but I always think that that was the start of her you know, slippery slope. But she got to the stage where she couldn't do anything. She, she didn't know us, uh, but we kept her at home. The, the kids worked a, uh, more or less, a ro- organized a roster. Let's put it that way. They organ themselves organized a roster to come in and every weekend I was told to get lost. You know, <laughs> And I was fortunate Mary was a nurse, Leo's wife was a nurse, between those, those two girls. The medical side of it was looked after, and we kept her at home uh, until uh, the last five weeks. But it was a happy release for her and for and for the family when she did go. Actually,
0: so that's that's four years ago, back in May. And you and Betty were blessed, presumably, with grandchildren as well. Oh yes, we got uh,
1: fourteen grandchildren, and uh, last count there was eleven great grandchildren. That would keep me busy just for yourself, wouldn't it? well it keeps me busy I've got to make sure I keep my diary up to date <laughs> still living in the family home in Northbourne and still in the family home Peter is there one of these days i'll uh, I'll pass on and then they can uh, they can move out I just got my rate notice yesterday we bought the block of land in 42 not in 42 for 350 pounds now the road was made the footpath was made it was sewered. This side of Doncaster Road wasn't so, but I was. The electric light was there, and the gas. So the only thing we didn't have was a phone. We got good value for money, and it's a good-sized block, about eight hundred and fifty square meters. <laughs> My council valuation of the land alone uh, yesterday was one point seven two million.
0: And what do you think of this? this new wave of investment and properties and houses being knocked over and you'd be right in amongst it i'd imagine it's happening right alongside me at the moment and down the back <laughs> and, and how do you feel the difference between when you <coughs> came in and you said there were some old weather boards around and presume they all got knocked over eventually after the war and well, people... well they're the ones that got the early knock after the war yeah but the block of land we bought was one
1: of three blocks that came on the market it was owned by the church of england was it and they decided these three blocks were surplus to their requirements. Ultimately, they built a church and a hall and a kindergarten down on the corner right. of Maud Street and Osmond Avenue, but the other three blocks they sold off, and, and the three of us all built at the same time, 1948-49. I've seen all the, a lot of new ones go up, and I've seen a lot of the old ones knocked down and replaced by new ones, and to my, to my way of thinking, there's, there's no... Uh, There's no architectural significance or beauty about them at all. They're all built in in the same mould. Then at the time we built, there was a certain amount of individuality about property. You never found two in the same street, the same style. Everything was different, which was... And we were here for 11 years, as I indicated, before we got a car and we used to spend our weekends pushing the pram round North Ball and taking the kids out and packing them. Some on the back, some sitting on the front of the pram and that kind of business. As well as learning about the area, we were able to stop and look and appreciate things. And Every house was different, every street was different. Now, they're all becoming much the same. Oh, that's, to my way of thinking anyway, they are.
0: And it's happened pretty quickly. And I hasn't? can't
1: understand really the reasoning behind it because most of them have got four bedrooms. Not too many people have families that, that require four bedrooms these days. There certainly aren't the number of families to fit, fit into all these houses that they're building. So I don't know what's behind it all. They say
0: it's a lot of overseas money. It could be. I don't know. Well, have these neighbours come to appreciate what a fantastic neighbour they've got? What a wonderful person! And you obviously still enjoy living in the area. Right? Oh yes, yeah. It, uh, I don't drive much
1: now. I don't. I don't drive at night. I'm um, too One, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm getting old and slow with my reaction times, and also for peace of mind with my family. So uh, come come dusk, I. No, that's the finish for the night for the night I'm not out in the car If I've got to go anywhere at night someone's got to come and get me and bring me home <laughs> like it was <laughs> originally when you had to go to those parent teacher nights that's and, right, yeah. <laughs> I'm back I'm back relying on somebody else but uh, I keep myself busy I played competition bowls I played until Betty died I only played Saturday pennant bowls after she died I decided I'd played the Tuesday pennant bowls as well which was your club North Baldwin, down in Buchanan Avenue there. Near the secondary school. Just down, below, just down below the Baldwin High School. Baldwin High, yeah. yeah,
0: mm. A big sports Mac- Behind there. Park there. Uh, close yes. to Maclay Park. Yeah, Park, Maclay Yeah. Park. yeah.
1: Yes. And uh, Maclay Park runs from, uh, from Severn Street to Buchanan Avenue and uh, uh, they've got a whole lot of activities there. They've got netball courts and uh, soccer courts and all the rest of it and the bowling green. We've got three Bowling Greens there, we've got a membership somewhere around about 300, we've got synthetic quartz surfaces so that we can we can play there uh, year round, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And this is the first winter that I haven't taken full advantage of it, but I'm conscious of the fact that I'm getting a bit older and a bit more I suppose susceptible to, <laughs> to the winter chills and ills. And uh, I don't get down very often, but I did tell them at the, in March that I wouldn't be playing competitive bowls again. So uh, what did they do? They co-opted me into the selection committee. So. You didn't think you were going to get off that easily, <laughs> <laughs> did you? Well, that's what I was told. They <laughs> <laughs> said, you know too much. Well, I've been playing down there since 1978. And There are still a few around, but not, or not too many around that joined. I think I'm the. No, there's one there who who uh, who was there when I was joined. The rest of them have come since, and a lot of them have come and gone. But I'm I'm a reasonably good assessor, I think. So that's what
0: I think myself. (laughs) Well, Jerry, I've just really enjoyed listening to your story and Betty's story and the Sexton story. Um, you're looking fantastically fit and healthy and well. Well, I've uh, been well looked after, let's put it <laughs> that way, by by a succession of good women. <laughs> and uh, and to people who are listening to this, though just, I'm sure, Bid's loving every second of it. And it's obviously the Sexton family is a great Marcelin family, and mm. and thank you for your contribution <laughs> to our history because uh, you know, oh, that's, well, that's I'm, ha- I'm happy if it if it helps to further any cause at all. Well, we must have you around here more often and um, because of this new initiative with the college, with the foundation, more and yeah. more things are happening in community-wise. Yeah. So, Jerry, thank you very much for giving us your time. It's been a just an absolute treat talking to you. Oh, I've been happy to come. Thank you. Well, there it is, Jerry's extraordinary story. I'm pleased to advise that Jerry is alive and well, still living in the family home in North and I still bump into him from time to time. He's an extraordinary bloke. If you like Jerry's story and you want to hear more, subscribe to my channel. And if you have a friend or a relative that you'd like to have their story recorded, get in touch, preciousstories.com.au. Thanks for listening.